0: Labor tensions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. As you may have heard, we were perhaps just a few days away from a national labor strike involving railway workers over the past couple of weeks. That has been averted since the Biden administration and Congress have essentially agreed to force a deal on the railway labor unions. The deal still does not include any paid sick leave. However, what does it all mean now? Joining us is Jason Greer. He is a labor expert, also the founder and president of Greer Consulting. Jason, thanks for being with us. So no labor strike, but is it possible that a lot of people now leave the railway
1: industry? I don't know that they're gonna leave because it's pretty much all that they know. I think what the bigger issue here is the fact that you have employees or union members who basically were given a contract that looks cash rich. But really it's coming at the expense of them because you're looking at an industry that has not grown. You're looking at an industry that where the average worker is 45 years of age and they're not recruiting young people, they're not recruiting women, they're not recruiting ethnic minorities. So I don't think it's a case where these employees are going to leave so much as it is a case where if the employers don't start treating these employees better, it's an industry that's going to implode by its own actions. Imploding because I mean, it sounds
0: like the railway workers, they have the leverage for the reasons you just cited. What do they do with that leverage? I mean, how does the industry implode? Is there another perhaps a threat of a work stoppage? Are there other issues that
1: railway workers can put in play? Yeah, here's part of the challenge is they can threaten another strike, but Good is threatening a strike when Congress basically has the power to avert that strike, just as we just saw. I think one of the things that they can do, and we see this happen in various unions, is they can do work slowdowns, if not work stoppages. They know, you know, here's the problem is when you tick off people who understand your systems, be prepared for those very people to do something to those systems to slow it down in order to make their point. So there's various mechanisms, resources that they can utilize. The question is, are they going to do it? This reminds me of many years ago, I was an assignment editor at Cable
0: News Network. And um, and I was asked in the midst of all the controlling the crews and trying to make sure people are at the right place at the right time, I needed to pay more attention to the cost of office supplies. And so <laughs> to sort of send a message, I said, okay, I'm gonna pay, pay a lot of attention to the cost of office supplies. But as a result, everybody's gonna get overtime because I'm not gonna give them their meal penalties when they're supposed yes. to. And as a result, I cost the company more money by trying to help them figure out how to Stop with office supplies. It's sort of a maybe a silly example, but I imagine the same thing could be in play with railway workers. If anybody could cause a train to be late or cause a train to be delayed or perhaps have some issues moving along the tracks, it would be railway workers. And it seems like they're the ones who have the capacity to really
1: drive up the cost if they want. They definitely have the capacity, they definitely have the know how. But let's talk about one simple issue. Had you're talking about railroad companies that are making upwards of 1000% more profit than they ever have before. Mm -hmm. And the biggest sticking point was simply giving 15 paid sick days. That's going to cost you nothing compared to the amount of money that you bring in. Had the companies just done right by these employees, we wouldn't even be talking about this in the first place. So I think it really comes down to Will they do these things? Maybe. I'm talking in terms of the union members potentially doing work slowdowns. But I think we really need to look at these railroad companies and ask the question of what are you going to start doing to make sure that these employees are taken care of?
0: I've heard from a couple of people that the way the the, 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 the possible two reasons I guess why the railroad companies have done what they've done first possible just greed they simply just don't want to pay out the money and secondly uh, that there's a certain sort of level of efficiency that some people talk about with the railroad industry that if you have people taking sick days then you start to ruin with the efficiency that is so dependent on making sure things get to the right place at the right time does that make sense
1: it does it makes perfect sense because it's it's a very precise industry the problem with it being so precise is the fact that they have not put in mechanisms that are necessarily going to allow for employees taking time off so when you consider what happened over the global pandemic meaning covid these workers were working overtime they were working to the point where it you know, just listen to their families talk about the fact that they didn't, see their, they didn't see their loved ones for the better part of three to four weeks because they were working hand over fist. So I think it really comes down to the fact that railroad companies, through some mechanisms called autom- automation, have the ability to make some wholesale changes within this industry that's going to benefit the workers while also benefiting the business. Have the
0: railroad companies done a very good job? And it sounds like maybe no, but of training sort of the next generation. Because again, given that this is a particular sort of business, I -hmm. imagine there's a lot of front end learning that needs to be done for people who are gonna work there. And it would seem to me like the responsibility is on the railroad companies
1: to make sure there is a resupply of workers. I wish they used the old Bill Belichick model that for as great as Tom Brady is, I need to find the next Tom Brady because you never know what Tom Brady's going down with an injury. Same thing with the railroad companies. I think they've done a terrible job in terms of training and guiding the next generation of railroad workers. We only know this because they're not available. Again, I go back to the point that the average age of a railroad worker is 45 years old. That's a lot of years of their bodies being broken down, the mental fatigue, the emotional fatigue of the job. And if you don't bring that next generation on board, you're going to see, you know forget what just happened in terms of the potential strike. You're gonna see again an implosion that we're not ready for. What is it that Congress and the Biden administration
0: or any administration could do to either incentivize the railroad companies to invest more in terms of getting new workers and training more people or perhaps to punish them for not
1: doing the right thing like simply including this paid leave? If I'm advising Joe Biden, here's exactly what I say to President Biden. I would look at those railroad companies and say, I did you a solid this time because I wanted to avert a potential strike right before the holidays. But I'm not gonna be there for you the next time. You get your in a row and you get your house in order. You start taking care of these employees, you give them paid sick time, you make sure their health care coverage is great, not just adequate, is great because you can afford it. You take care of these folks because this is not just about your profit, this is about the American system. Because consider this, David, had a strike happen, we're talking about a $2 billion per day impact on the American economy. We cannot afford to get this wrong, but now the onus has to be on these companies to get it right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, in order to put in 15 days of paid sick leave, that would
0: have cost maybe $500 million to the industry. If that,
1: if that, that's what gets me. You're making so much money, you're gonna make that money up next month. Just take care of the employees. But I think it also comes down to the fact that these railroad companies are basically, the entire industry is run how it was back in the 60s, where control was everything. But here's the nature of control, control can corrupt and unfortunately it's corrupting these folks to the point where they can't see the impact that their actions are having for the employees that they basically make their lifeblood off of.
0: What are some of the reasons that profits are up for
1: the railroad industry? Getting that the whole, you know, everyone keeps talking about the supply chain without people understanding what the supply chain really looks like. The reason why the uh, profits are up is because there's a greater demand for products, goods, and services across the country. That's a big reason. In effect, you have employees around various states, around various uh, cities who depend on Amtrak. They depend on trains to get them from point A to point B. So that's really, there's a higher demand, and they are seizing on that demand. I thought I read somewhere that the railroad companies have also been able to
0: make, uh, to do more with less, I suppose, you know, increase their efficiency. But it feels like there comes a certain point where you go too far, where you're really stretching your personnel, your workers to the point of, to the brink. And that seems Mm -hmm. like that could be dangerous as much as it may be profitable.
1: It can be dangerous, but COVID was sort of the great reckoning. You know, We talk about the fact that over the COVID era, it was sort of the year of the employee where employees were able to dictate what they wanted in terms of either, do I want to go back to work? Do I want to work remotely? Or what does my employment have to look like for me and for my family? But I think it was also the great, reckon, great reckoning for companies because they started to realize that as opposed to employing six people, now we can employ three people and get the work of six people out of those three people. Part of the challenge is when you have a system that's as physically intensive as the railroad system, you end up burning these folks out.
0: are the um, are the railroad lines getting longer as well? I mean, the number of cars I've seen that well, a lot of companies now are have sort of this idea of well, if we can put one hundred you know railroad cars together, we can easily
1: put two hundred railroad cars together with the same number of staff absolutely because they understand that they now we can maximize our profit. We can maximize our profit because you have clearly shown and talk about the employees, you've clearly shown that you're going to make sure that our products goods and services get out even if there's only two of you doing it. Where do you see these tensions going over the next uh, couple of months Jason? I think it's going to die down because it's the unfortunate nature of society is that we you know, we grieve quickly and then we move on to the next thing to grieve. So I think it's gonna die down because the public's no longer really talking about it, because the strike was averted, people are going to get their G.I. Joe with the kung fu grip, you know, for their kids and all that great stuff. But I think what we need to really look at is where are we going in terms of labor relations for the future? Because this was a prime case, a prime example of unions being in the forefront of the media. People were talking about it and unfortunately, Congress clipped their wings. So I think what we're going to need to really pay attention to is how do we go about strengthening certain collective bargaining agreements so that the workers are taken care of?
0: In other words, I mean, it may have been bad for the railroad workers today. It could be bad for other unions tomorrow, or the next week, if Joe Biden continues sort of on this path of essentially, you know, not busting the unions, but essentially, as you mentioned, clipping their wings, forcing them into deals that the workers may not want.
1: Well, Joe Biden campaigned on the fact that he was going to be the most pro-union president that we've ever seen before. And unfortunately for Mr. Biden, when the opportunity came up, came for you to actually take care of the unions, you did Was it politically smart? Sure. But was it smart in terms of what it's going to do to your base, which is largely unions? I don't think so. I think it's a classic case of you know, we live in this world sort of a black and white where you're either right or you're wrong, but sometimes we have to live in this world of gray. I have worked in many situations in which unions have not been good for particular employers and they've been good for other employers. So I think it just makes sense that we need to start taking a better look at what is going to happen going forward.
0: Jason Greer is the founder and president of Greer Consulting. He is also an expert in all things involving labor relations. And so I guess, you know, good news, the good news is in the meantime, you know, there's no labor strike. We can all get from point A to point B on rail and all those presents and everything the holiday season, they will be in the stores. The bad news is this could be a rough couple of months or years ahead for the for the railway
1: workers. Absolutely. Absolutely. But God bless them and God bless their families. Yeah. Jason, thanks so much for doing this.
0: Jason Greer, we appreciate it.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster, Elon Musk. The billionaire, relatively new owner of Twitter seems to be welcoming back a lot of accounts that had been deactivated, including those that seem to belong to a number of neo-Nazis. And as a result, Twitter seems to become an even more hateful place to read messages, to send messages, to interact with other folks. Here to talk about this is David Gilbert. He is a senior reporter for Vice News who's been watching some of the hateful stuff online, particularly on Twitter. Uh, David, what have you seen over the past couple of weeks? Um, it's It's been incredible
2: really, David, to see what Musk has done with Twitter since he came back. Almost immediately uh, when he came back, he reinstated a number of accounts that had been banned for, for a long time on Twitter because of the hate speech that they had been spreading. Um, so almost immediately it became much worse place if you can imagine that. Because Twitter already was a pretty, toxic environment for a lot of people on there. But he his policies have made it much worse for people. The number, the level of hate speech has increased. The content moderation has evaporated effectively because most of the people who are doing the content moderation are no longer working for Twitter because Musk fired them. Um, and his policy really is to allow everyone pretty much back on the platform with a few exceptions and allow them to say whatever they want. And rather than deleting the content, he says that it just will be not promoted and it will be hard to find. But the content remains there. So overall, it's 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 a pretty much more toxic place than it was prior to most taking over.
0: And he has engaged with some of these you know, right wing white supremacists as well, either through retweets or through asking them questions or encouraging them to come back on.
2: Yeah, he's he's engaged with them and given them credence and boosted their credibility. Um, he's been engaging with one of the very early account engagement was an account called Cat turd, which is a far right trolling account which spreads anti LGBTQ uh, narratives. Um, it's he engaged with Libs of TikTok? He's engaged with Tim Pool, the far right uh, podcaster. Um, and he's giving these people a platform and giving them credibility by engaging with them, retweeting their accounts. Um, and it just seems that he is doing it because he thinks it's going to create more of an engaged environment on Twitter. And he said that the, the number of people engaging with Twitter has grown since he's taken over and his policy seems to be, uh, let me talk to the most toxic or the, the most people who will kind of cause the most reaction possible on Twitter.
0: So in other words, for business purposes, uh, never mind his own sort of personal views, for business purposes, he sees he wants Twitter to essentially be the place, the platform where people engage with each other, even if it's a cesspool. Uh, so I, I guess I sort of see it business wise, but is there a downside as well? Because I mean, it seems like a lot of people have now left Twitter because Elon Musk has sort of opened up this platform to all these lunatics. Yeah,
2: it, it seems to be a very short sighted um, policy because while I'm sure the number of people looking at Twitter on a daily basis has grown because it's it's kind of like a soap opera effectively turning on Twitter every day and seeing what Musk is doing now or who's back on Twitter and what he's allowing on the platform. In the long run, it's, it's going to be devastating for the platform. Um, The football, the soccer world cup is on at the moment and it's typically one of the biggest busiest times for Twitter over the the past decade. It has been a huge driver of traffic to Twitter when people engage on the platform and talk about the games that are happening. But according to one report this week, the amount of advertising that they expected from the world cup was down 80% compared to expectations, which shows just how toxic it has become and how advertisers, some advertisers at least, are staying away because they just don't want their adverts next to white supremacist or anti-Semitic content.
0: It's so interesting because we've seen that happen before in terms of cable news or or talk radio, that if a, if a host or a show becomes too hot, there's a lot of pressure on the advertisers. Even if you know you can still reach you know, millions of people to not Advertise, not support that program, and it sounds like there's a similar effect now, a similar awareness in the advertising industry that you know if you really want to get sort of neutral content that you're advertising next to, uh, Twitter's not the place.
2: Yeah, and there was a sustained push initially with Musk over, and his policies became clear to kind of pressure advertisers, just as they've been pressurized before, um, to kind of pull their content from different. Um, cable news shows, as you said. Um, but it's it's hard to see how advertisers in the long run are going to stick with Twitter if Musk continues down this road where this week alone he brought back Andrew Anglin, who is one of the most notorious neo-Nazis in the US, who was banned from Twitter uh, a, nearly a decade ago and hasn't been allowed back on it since. He's the publisher of the Daily Stormer and he he is without doubt one of the best known white supremacists in the US. And the fact that Musk decided that he was someone who should be brought back onto the platform really gives you an indication of the direction that Musk seems to be taking it in. And it's hard to see how advertisers in the long run are going to kind of decide that this is okay.
0: Is there a direct competitor to Twitter that maybe Musk was looking to try to squelch? I mean, was there a platform or place where a lot of the far right were sort of communicating with each other that he thought, okay, I'm gonna open back up Twitter in order to tamp that down. I I guess like the, the far
2: right typically has congregated in a couple of places. Most notably probably telegram and also gab to a certain extent. Uh, but those aren't really competitors to Twitter. They're not a place where open conversations happen. They're not a place where people go to find out news or to see different opinions. People there join closed groups and they get kind of a an echo chamber, effectively, of of um, their viewpoint kind of pushed back to them. Um, and even in the week since Musk took over, a lot of people have been looking at Mastodon or a couple of other places where they think maybe could be a Twitter alternative. But Twitter is unique, I think. It's, it's something that can't easily be replicated in the short term. And that's like obviously an issue for a lot of groups who like to use Twitter to communicate with each other. They don't automatically have somewhere else to go. And that's, I think, why Musk paid 44 billion for Twitter in the first place, is because it is unique and there is huge potential there. But the fact that he has kind of taken it in a very specific direction uh, means that it's, it's gonna be hard if it does kind of over time go away or become very much less popular for, to find somewhere else for these communities to, to thrive.
0: One of the greatest concerns that people have with the social media is that a particular platform will be used by people who might organize the next January sixth, so the next mass shooting or the next firebombing of a synagogue. Um, does Musk seem to have a plan in place? Should Twitter, and not just being used to you know for people to communicate with each other their sort of feelings, but maybe any sort of organizational plans that some of these lunatics have to actually carry out violence? What does Musk do at that point? Um. Uh- I think
2: that's one of the problems that his his policy on on the content that's up there is to rather than take it down or remove it is to just de like to to not show it in search results. And as a result the content remains there and therefore it can be pointed to by different groups and people can still find it can still see it. It's it's not Twitter's never really going to be a place where it's going to be used for the kind of organization that we saw on January 6th. That is going to happen in more private channels like Telegram or WhatsApp groups or other encrypted channels where the public can't easily find it. But what it, Twitter will do is allow the viewpoints that drive people, that radicalize people into these groups, it will become a conduit for that. And that was something that Twitter had worked hard to, to kind of stop or to, to try and remove in the years leading up to Musk's takeover. But that now seems to be eradicated effectively in a couple of weeks. So that the types of viewpoint that we're seeing spread on Twitter now could very easily radicalize people and drive them into more extremist groups in other platforms where it's very hard to see exactly what's going on.
0: Is Twitter still profitable, or has it been profitable over the last several months since Musk has made these changes? I mean, or is it still sort of a a losing sort of proposition?
2: I can't see how it it can be profitable since Musk took over. Um, While he says that daily engagement is up, advertisers are clearly scared about what's happening. Now, some advertisers, there was talk that Apple had pulled out of advertising on Twitter, that was not the case. They've actually increased their amount of advertising in November compared to the previous month. So advertisers are still on the platform for now. But I think if we're going to continue to see um, Musk push in the direction that he has been pushing already and promote the types of accounts that he is promoting and allow the type of content that we're seeing to stay on the platform, then that's going to be a Big problem for Musk and for Twitter, and I think his investment is is quickly going to diminish.
0: Has there been much pressure or pushback against Musk from, and I'm thinking of the you know Southern Poverty Law Center or the Anti Defamation League or all these groups that try to track the sort of right wing hate and try to you know make sure that it's sort of monitored and sort of filtered out of certain places? Um, how is Musk reacting to whatever some of these watch groups are doing?
2: He's like initially when they raised concerns about his his policies, he engaged with them and he met with them. But it seems that it was he did it to kind of appease them in a certain way, but he has just completely ignored what they've called on. They've repeated their calls for him to try and remove the type of hate speech that still, you know, continues to pervade on the platform. He says he claims that The level of hate speech has dropped since he's taken over. But several independent groups like the groups you mentioned have published reports about the level of hate speech, anti-Semitic speech, homophobic slurs. And they've all increased dramatically since Musk took over by their count. And, And Musk, when he made his claims, did not provide the actual data to back up what he said.
0: And there's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence that, in fact, it's become a much more sort of hateful cesspool of uh, conversations that are going on and literally screaming at each other. But in any case, David Gilbert, he's a senior reporter for Vice News. Uh, David, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate it. You're welcome. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Mark Gillespie, Bart Kyle, Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the entire gang at The Young Turks, I'm David Schuster.
1: Thanks for watching.